0: Pop up your coffee and come on back. Looks like it's just us grown ups today, like kids at the ridge, fuel, source. Yeah, Josh, you're a grown up. <laughs> Which is probably a good thing because we're going to talk about love letters and all sorts of that kind of stuff. When I was a kid, I know. If you, you know, every kid, every kid, especially if Savannah was here, she would be all over this. Every kid loves it when their parent is about to have a conversation about love and sex and marriage. And they start with, when I was a kid. Savannah, that's one of her favorite sayings. (laughs) She just steps right in right there, tries to cut the conversation off. Nevertheless, when I was a kid, back in the day, love letters. That was the primary way that we expressed ourselves, right? Right? We can remember going back, some of you, you remember before there was emojis and Facebook and other electronic ways to tell somebody you loved them. It was all pen and paper, love letters. That was the soundtrack of our emotions, right? In fact, the oldest known love letter, can you imagine writing that thing out and handing it off to somebody? that chunk, it probably weighs like 50 pounds, that is the oldest known love letter, the love song for Shu Sin, 2000 BC, that's a thousand years before King Solomon, and, uh, and I, I looked it up, and I looked up a translation of it, and it's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite racy, it's quite explicit kind of stuff, and, uh, but it just reminds us that it connects with one of the most personal parts of our being. And uh, maybe that's why, as uh, Pastor Brad said last Sunday, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs has historically been one of the most preached on books of the Bible. One of the most theologized. You can can go online and get a 12-volume commentary set on this eight-chapter book. That's how much, like, people have dedicated in in past generations their entire lives to this book. And yet, in recent history, like, my generation, those of you who are older than my generation, and even, you know, current generation, millennials, the church has kept this book at arm's length. Like, we acknowledge it's there, but we have struggled with this poetic collection of love letters in the Bible. Seriously, how many of you, uh, who here can say that they've heard more than, let's say, five sermons on the Song of Songs? Two. Two. I'm not even in that camp, and I'm a pastor. I've been pastoring since 1990, and I don't think I can say I've heard five sermons. And I know I haven't preached five sermons. And most, what's that? (laughs) Yeah, well, I haven't heard them, so. Um, And most of the time, and I don't know about, uh, I think it was James and Walter who put up their hands. I don't know how it was for you, but the couple that I have heard, like, back in the day, they were confusing to me. Like, it didn't seem to jive with what I had read in the book. Because um, those, like, I think I I can remember two And they were all about the allegory of the Song of Solomon and this deep spiritual meaning in the book. And I'm like, did you read the same book that I read? Because it sounds to me like it's a bunch of love letters between two people who are madly in love with each other. And, Anyways, it's odd that our experience as church is that this book is way out there. And we keep it at arm's length. Because one of the hallmarks of conservative evangelical church, at least for me growing up, is the expectation of marriage. And I always assumed that if you got married, like I was always expected to get married, that with that would come intimacy and sex. But we would never talk about that. You go ahead and get married, but there was always this message of you'll figure the rest out after that. And so... uh, Sex wasn't a topic for Sunday morning. It was not welcomed in the pulpit. It was not brought in to this kind of a setting. We were only, and if it was, it was only to remind us that you save it for marriage, because otherwise it will do considerably destructive things in your life. Right? Like it was on the top five of don't do this kind of things with drugs and alcohol. And dancing and playing cards, (laughs) swimming in two-piece bathing suits, right? Like that kind of a thing. Top of the danger list. And yet here in the middle of Scripture, we have this book, Song of Songs. And I don't know if, last week Pastor Brad gave you the homework to read it. Did anybody go home and read it? Or is reading it? Okay, you're going to get the same homework again today. When you read it, you're going to have some questions. And one of the questions that you're going to have is, are these two married? It doesn't seem like it. In fact, there's a strong case that they're not married. Theologian Don Gentry argues that the Song of Songs is meant to show us a love that is not necessarily connected with marriage or procreation, as opposed to some parts of the Old Testament, which view marriage as contracts of ownership and women as breeders or as theologian Robert Jensen says, indeed, the description of these young lovers is offered with no reticence, moral judgment, or great deference to legal or social constraints. What are they saying? They're saying that love is what it is. It's a bunch of love letters. That's what we have in the middle of of the scriptures, is a bunch of love letters that simply delight in the physical beauty and, and, the, and sexual attraction. It's not a marriage how-to manual. It's not a how can I improve my sex life, what do I do, don't I do kind of a manual for Christians. That, it's, that was never its purpose. If you're going there for that, I think you're going to be disappointed. Disappointed. It's simply a celebration of an incredible aspect of who we are created to be in the image of God. And that's why so many 20th century preachers have pushed it aside because that one area that it celebrates is our sexuality. And as we heard amongst us as staff last week from our children, Smethers clan, the Sumner clan, and the Nickel clan, this is awkward. Can I just leave? If dad's going to be preaching on sex, I don't need to necessarily want to be here. Okay? Like, it's, it's true. We all heard it from our kids. We've come to believe that sex and God don't mix. But it's there. It's right there in the canon. How many of you think that that, one, that book just kind of slipped past God? Yeah. It's very presence there. It's worth our consideration. And the fact that it revolves around sexuality and intimacy is important to us whether we are married or single. So even though uh, Mike said I'm going to be talking about marriage today, which I will, uh, this this is not just for married people only. This is for everybody. In fact, I'll say that you won't. I'll bet my house that you can't not think about sex before you're married. It's not like when you get married, some magical switch flips on. Right? That happens during puberty to all of us. We all go through that long before we're married. Getting married is just another step in the process. So if you're single here today, um, We would be doing you a great injustice just to say to you, don't worry about sex, don't think about sex, don't do it until you're married, and then you'll figure it out. If that's the message you've heard from the church, then the church is failing you. It does not prepare anyone to engage and enjoy healthy, pleasurable sex within marriage. So I think as a church, it's time that we claim this conversation back. And that one of the things that we need to do is start to combat those extremes that we've heard in the, uh, you know, when the pendulum swings of either, you know, if you have any thoughts or urges, you know, that are in the sexual realm, then you either, you know, just need to shun them and run away, or you just need to blindly submit to them and follow them. I think those are the two messages people hear. I think society says, if it feels good, do it. And I think the church has primarily said, run away. Don't do it. And then you're like stuck in the middle, like if those are your only two options. I think Song of Songs gives us a better way. I think it gives us a way to help us accept who we are, to accept our bodies that God created us so that we can enjoy them and share with the body of a future spouse or a spouse that you're currently with and the ancient text helps us with that. So let's take a look at a couple of ways how it does that. Now, again, I was coming with the assumption that all of you followed Pastor Brad's homework and that you have all read the book at least once by now. Um, So again, you got to go home and read the book. But I'm going to start with the assumption that you've read it or that at least you know It is a bunch of poetry, love letters written between two lovers. It's semi-erotic. That's what it is. Once you get your head wrapped around that, then you can begin to ask, okay, God, why? Like, why did you include this book? Like, what do you have for me with this book in the Bible? Let's look at a few things that I think that it has for us. I think that it can help us in a few different ways redeem love and sexuality in our broken world. And the first clear redemptive move that leaps off the page in the Song of Songs as you go home and read it today is this profound mutuality between lovers. The mutuality between these lovers is in stark contrast to the fall and the punishment that we find in Genesis chapter 3. And it should inform how we think and how we live out our biblical relationships with others, especially in the context of marriage. But I think in all our relationships, as, we said, as I said earlier, in the Song of Songs, love simply is what it is. It has its end in itself in this book. It's simply saying, guys, here's a picture of love. It's not meant to promote procreation. It's not um, there to act as um, a a gauge of power and authority or dominance. Is one partner better than the other partner? These two lovers have an alliance, and they live in this free, reciprocal, face-to-face relationship where they alternate, actually, taking the initiative. And they're celebrating a mutual giving of themselves to another person. A mutual uh, give and take relationship. Marvin Pope says their mutuality leaves no room for male dominance, for female subordination, or stereotyping of either sex. These two lovers share a mutual connection, a mutual desire and love that excludes subordination. That may not shock us today, but you need to go back 3,000 years. That was shocking then. Especially if you hold that Solomon wrote this and he was king and, he, and there's not a subordination there. That's crazy talk then. I think the poetic letters can point us back, though, to Genesis and to the creation account where God creates humankind in his image. Male and female, he creates them, and he blesses them, and he says, Be fruitful and multiply, go, enjoy sex. And then the two of you together have dominion over the earth, over the animals. And what does he do? He proclaims that very good. Friends, mutual sexuality was part of original design. That's Adam and Eve walked in the garden naked. I don't want to shock you. They had sex. I'm pretty sure. I know it doesn't say it right there, but God did say multiply. I know that's, you know... Some of you want to believe that that was doing math, and then later on they went and did the vision. No. Go and fill the earth. How do you do that? And I think that there's a biblical vision there that we can aspire to. And Genesis and Song of Songs combine in that. So as you read the Song of Songs later today, uh, let, it, let it draw a reflective picture for you. Let it take you back to Genesis 1 and 2. Go ahead and read, I mean, that's even more homework, but go ahead and read that chapter too, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, if you're really keen and you have extra time. It takes like 10 minutes to read Song of Songs, folks, so I'm not heaping a lot of work on you here. But... It's important because these two books work together. These two, the creation account and Song of Songs, I think definitely work together. Because Song of Songs stands in contrast. I just finished talking about how it has a comparison, but it also then stands in contrast to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. What do we find after the fall and they're banished from the garden and Eve is told what? This guy's going to have dominion over you. He's gonna have power over you. You're gonna, your desires will be for him. Hey? Okay? Adam isn't told that. She is told that. But throughout the Song of Songs, especially uh, you can go look in, in chapter 7, we see language that's that mirrors that, but it's coming from both. His desire is for her. Her desire is for him. There isn't a sense of dominance anymore. The man and the woman are together in full mutuality. And they're erasing that part of the curse that came in Genesis 3. They're showing us a picture of what God intended it to be and that it was possible for it to happen even outside of the garden. So again, I don't think you can understand Song of Songs without going back and looking at Genesis in the first couple of chapters and reading them in tandem. The love relationship in the Song of Songs has a correlation. It's a signpost back to that common mutuality where God said, male and female, He created. I can create you in my image and I'm going to give you guys dominion. Theologian uh, Thalia Brenner says, in this garden, the Song of Songs garden, and when you read it, you'll see there's a lot of garden imagery uh, in there. Gender, inequality, together with material and social conflicts between the sexes, pale into significance. So again, it just describes this context that we can actually aspire to. If we want to lean into God's redemptive plan, his, into his redemptive purpose, ever since the fall, it's been about redemption to get p- us back into relationship with him. If you want to lean into that rather than give in to the curse of the fall, then Song of Psalms has a lot to say. Because there's so much in there. The first thing that should leap out to you is this incredible mutuality that these two people have. And again, just think of the context in the times. If it is Solomon writing, he would have been much older than this young woman. He would have been king. She would have been not, like she was woman in a patriarchal state, and yet you read this, and it's just like they're equals. It's crazy. It's crazy good. Another way that uh, love and marriage, I think, can be uh, we, can, we get some help from Song of Psalms in redeeming love and marriage is through the uh, message of, of intimacy and this sense of the mystery of intimacy. What do I mean by that? Intimacy is a divine initiative. <coughs> intimacy is not something that we came up with. It's not something that we generated out of our own feelings. God actually created us in his image, and part of that creation includes intimacy. Again, today, for, for, for centuries, the prime reading uh, interpretation of the book was this allegorical reading. It couldn't just be a bunch of love letters plunked in the middle of, of this canon, could it? No, no, no. It has to have a much deeper s- theological significance. It has to have this great other picture that we're just not getting, and that was the allegorical reading. Today, I think most scholars have tipped back and said, no, you know what? That's what it is. Like this whole idea that it's really a picture of God loving Israel or Christ loving. You can push that aside. It's really just take it for what, it's, for what you read. Now, I don't think that we need to throw one out for the other. I, I, I think that these two can be held together when we read through this book. Yeah, it is definitely a collection of love letters, of poetry between two lovers. You need to start there. But it also does paint another picture of meaning for us that points us to the grand narrative of Scripture. The truth is that we know and experience God's love for us in relationship to our experience of human love. You can't separate those, and vice versa. Those two things are linked. It, it just is. What you experience with your spouse, or with a boyfriend, or girlfriend, or somebody else in a love relationship is connected in how you understand God. And if we remove that element from the Song of Songs, then all we do have is this group of semi-erotic poems love letters to each other and then we can really question like what the heck are they doing there like but if we take them out if we take that uh, that component that literal reading of them away then we can also question because then we don't ever need to explore our own human sexuality and we don't ever need to sit down with God and with our marriage partner and talk about some of the most inner felt emotions and dynamics that we experience as a human being and somehow connect those to he created me in his image and said it was good. We really do need to have, I think, both interpretations working together to realize the fullness, the beauty of understanding. In other words... Our sexuality can actually heighten and help us understand who God is. And God's love for us can actually improve, uh, enhance our sex life, our sexuality. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. He created us with this. It's not something we came up with. And I think one of the obvious uh, places that we can experience that is is for those who are married is in that crazy equation of marriage, right? One plus one doesn't equal two. Now, sometimes it does. But I know we've experienced that time where one plus one equals one. We're privileged to experience this mystery of how a sexual encounter with our spouse can actually move us closer to God because we're experiencing things in our innermost place and we can find God there. And that mystery is incredibly uh, beautifully illustrated by the lovers in the Song of Songs as they celebrate a love so intense that there's a divine element to it. It's simultaneously natural. It's simultaneously spiritual. And again, I think it, it points us back to the garden of Eden where where Adam and Eve walked naked as sexual human beings in the presence of God. I know that that is kind of e for some of us. Like we think when we close the room to the door to our bedroom with our spouse that God somehow puts earmuffs on and puts shades on and he like goes into the basement. It's not true. God was there in the very presence of Adam and Eve. And in the New Testament text, marriage, same emphasis. This is not just Old Testament stuff. Uh, The sense of unity between husband and wife and God is reinforced. Paul does it in the book of Ephesians. He takes the emphasis of oneness and unity of the church and, and right along with it talks about marriages in the same context. So again, God is there. God is present. It's a picture of of one being. In the Song of Songs, I think the poetry, uh, it just beautifully reflects that, that mystery of oneness and unity, and that's where that mystery of intimacy comes in. You pull out the divine out of your relationship, you are not going to experience the intimacy the way that God intended it. And I think the Song of Songs does a great job in helping us understand that. And allowing us to be free in that area of our life to say, God, you are welcome here. No, God, you are here. You actually created this stuff. I'm welcome to be here in your presence. I think the mystery of married love through sexual intimacy can also help us understand the depth. And I just said this a little bit more, but I want to talk a little bit more about the depth of the love that God has for us. I know that here on earth we can't fully know that. We, we, we're not. It's, you know, when we get to the next life, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow us away. Like, we're, we, we can't fully experience that. But I do think that our sexuality does play a helpful and important role in pulling back some of that divine curtain while we're down here. And again, vice versa, that God's love for us helps us know the truth about the love that we share with our marriage partner. And I want to acknowledge that there are... That there are Many, many of us who have painful memories, who have um, significant uh, baggage and stuff that was uh, perpetrated against them, that totally distorts this stuff. And it's hard to work through that, that looming shadow that shouldn't be there. But I think that our, our sexuality is an important factor in knowing and experiencing God Uh, within our marriages. It's an essential part of being human, and we need to reclaim that from society. Society has so misappropriated sexuality. It's unbelievable what it's done to it. And we need to reintegrate it back into our conversation and into our practical theology and not look to Hollywood to be the directive on society and what we know Sexuality and marriage, friends, is divine territory. It's a holy creation, right from the get-go, for a holy purpose. It's one of the ways that we can embody the reality of being created in the image of God, male and female, and our willingness to redeem that conversation, to redeem that, uh, who we are as sexual beings created in the image of God, and stepping out, into that awkward conversation, into that awkward place, be it with our kids or wherever it might come up, our willingness to do that, that can help change people's lives. That can help reflect God's love for them as he's created them. Now, if you want to try that, if you want to go down that road, I think one of the things that, um, that... at least I know I need to work on and and have tried to continually work on, to reflect that kind of love out is this aspect of self-denial, this aspect of giving uh, attention to the other that Paul talks about. Earlier we talked about that one plus one doesn't equal two. It's one plus one equals one. Could it possibly be, and, and sorry I'm not a mathematician, but could it possibly be that negative one plus negative one equals one? Is that what Paul is talking about in Philippians? When he talks about don't put yourself first, don't put your interests first, put the interest of others before your interests. Be like Christ who emptied himself, who could have had and kept that very nature of God and ruled it and lorded it, but he laid it down and he took on a human form. Friends, marital intimacy can't happen without repeated self, um, selfless movement toward the other. An ongoing practice of self giving love, vulnerability. That's what builds oneness. And it takes years of choosing that. Sylvia and I are coming up on 18, 19. You get this right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 19. And she nodded at 18, just so you know. Hey, guys. She nodded at 18. There you go. We're coming up on 19. And we're, I think we're just starting to get some of the benefits of that. Like, man, our first year of marriage was so tumultuous because it was nothing like, don't look out for your own interests. It was all about looking out for each of us. Like, we were two strong-willed, stubborn people getting together. And I think at the beginning, we just figured, you know, well, what I've done for my whole life has been successful, so I'm going to keep doing it, and you'll figure that out, and you'll just join me in it. And she's thinking the exact same thing. And we've often said that if we didn't have our faith in that first year of marriage, we would both still be doing our own things. We would never have lasted. We would have separated, divorced. I am convinced of that in our first year. I think it's just now, 19 years into it almost, that we're starting to realize, wow, this don't look out only for your own interests, this negative one thing, that's, that's a lifelong process. And we're starting to realize that not, I'm starting to realize, not all my longings and desires are intended to be met. Not even with the context of marriage. One of the things that you'll read in the Song of Songs is that the young woman, the young lover, actually goes out several times and looks and looks for her lover and doesn't find him. Like, not all her desires get met. Marriage doesn't complete us. I need to just check there, make sure that... That's okay to say. But it doesn't. I think Sylvia would totally agree with that. Contrary to what Jerry Maguire, right? We're, we're old enough, to, some of us, to remember the movie, right? There's two big lines out of that movie, right? One is, show me the money. That doesn't complete us. The other one is, he walks into that room of all the separated and divorced women, and, and she's there, and he barges in, and it's awkward, and oh yeah, all the women are nodding. They know, and he gives that speech. I know I have a clip, but I didn't want to show it today, and, You complete me. No, you don't. Sorry. Our marriages don't complete us. They actually serve as a testing ground to help us become more like Christ, more of emptying ourselves, more of giving of ourselves for another I'll say it. She doesn't know I'm going to say it. Self, so you don't complete me. I used to think that when I got married, my spouse would complete me. But the reality is she hasn't saved me from my sin. She hasn't even saved me from the sins that have been perpetrated against me. She can't do those things. But one thing our marriage does have is this tremendous capacity to unveil the love of God. That's what she has done for me. By her loving me the way that Christ loves the church, the way God loves her, when she loves me like that, that allows me and gives me freedom to move into the places like my sin or the sins that have been perpetrated against me and to begin to realize that my Savior can save me in those places. does have a tremendous capacity to unveil that love of God for us, that he would send his son for us, and that his son would go to those darkest, deepest places and those most intimate places of our being and say, I will go to the cross, and I will do what needs to be done so that those places can be redeemed, and you can feel the fullness, the fullness of the statement, I created you in my image. And Song of Songs actually signals for us throughout all of that. That strong garden imagery that you're going to read later today. I think that's the fourth time I've said that. You're going to read later today. It, it, it causes us to look back to the garden and see that it is possible for that curse to be reversed. That we can, without shame, embrace mutuality in our relationships. We don't have to go by what society says. We actually can do it according to what God intended. We can embrace mystery by inviting God into these deep places, these deep places of longing and desire and say, God, you created me with this stuff, so I want to meet you here and have a conversation with you here. And we can experience that intimacy there. And it does help us embrace those things within our marriage. My daily decisions to put my spouse ahead of me when I can do it. Because it's a challenge when I do it. That is, that is part, that is me engaging in the reality of thy kingdom come. You want to pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. You get to that line. You want to see some of that lived out and becoming real in, 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 in flesh. Go and put your spouse ahead of yourself. That's part of it. It demonstrates, it manifests the faithful love of God that never fails and is always coming, as we talked about back in our Revelation series. That's part of God's love, always coming. Friends, God is still the same creator that He was when He created Adam and Eve naked in the garden. And told them that they should have sex and multiply. And their intimacy with him in the midst of that was perfection. Perfection. Unbelievable. Like, it just dawned on me this morning when I was praying and talking about, with God about the message that uh, maybe you guys don't want this thought or image in your head, but because I have it, I'm going to share it. <laughs> is if they hadn't fell... If Adam and Eve were still, you know, didn't eat from the tree, we'd be in the garden, wouldn't we? I, I'm assuming, unless God had something else figured out, or we'd be there. That would be perfection. And Dale would be sitting there naked. <laughs> I know. I told you <laughs> And God would still be here we would still long to come to worship and be in his presence because he created us in his image male and female he created us friends it's amazing it's powerful and the song of songs reminds us of that it reminds us of the power and the beauty of simple of just of sexuality in and of itself in these semi erotic love poems it's okay it's there You don't have to be embarrassed. You can go home and read it tonight, or today, whether you're single. If you're married, you guys can read it together. You can even read it out loud to each other if you want. I don't know where that'll lead, but. And in the midst of that, you can say, okay, God, what do you have for me? You created me in your image, and I'm a sexual being. What do you have for me? What do you want to see happen in my life in this area? How does Song of Songs, like why, 3,000 years later, am I reading this book now? Have the conversation with God. I promise you, He will not blush. He will not be ashamed. He will not ignore you. Involve Him in the conversation. See what the God who created you, male, created you, female, in his image, and said it is good. See what he has for you in the Song of Songs. And invite the worship team to come up. We're going to sing a couple songs in reflection. The prayer team will be available. And if, even if you want to pray about this topic, those teams will keep stuff in confidence they don't come back and report to us as pastors or so if there's someone there that you feel that you can trust uh, and connect with and you want to talk on this subject and pray about it that's free and if you if that's not what you're going we won't we're not going to think that anybody who goes back today is just going there to talk about sex or pray about sex that's just our prayer teams are available for where you're at today um, and what for whatever's going on in your life and uh, that includes this topic and if you want some prayer for that, feel free. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, our worship team is going to lead us in some songs, and then we'll close off today.